Morning, church. Today's Bible reading is 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1 to 16. It's also on the screen. You know, brothers, that our visit to you was not failure. We had previously suffered and been insulted in Philippi, as you know, but with the help of our God, we dare to tell you his gospel in spite of strong opposition. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as men approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We're not trying to please men, but God, who tests our hearts. You know we never use flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from men, not from you or anyone else. As apostle of Christ, we could have been a burden to you, but we were gentle among you, like a mother caring for her little children. We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because you had become so dear to us. Surely you remember, brothers, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. And we, and we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted not as the word of man, but as it actually is, the word of God which is at work in you who believe. For you, brothers, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own countrymen the same thing those churches suffered from the Jews, who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. They displease God and are hostile to all men in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles, so that they may be saved. In this way, they always keep up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. This is the word of the Lord. Well, thank you, Chris. And uh, please do keep your Bibles open. Uh, there will be some uh, outline on the screen as well. But as we come to God's word this morning, let's pray. Abba Father... Lord of love and life, King of glory, Prince of peace. As we come to your word this morning, we recognize that it is living and active. And so, Father, we pray as we read your word, you would read our lives and speak to each one of us according to our need through this passage of your scripture today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, criticism can be hard to take at the best of times, can't it? No matter how thick-skinned you are, no matter how confident of your own position, criticism can hurt. 
It's true, isn't it? Even if you know that the critics have a point, even if you know they're basically telling you the truth, it can still be hard to respond in a positive way. I'm sure we've all been there. How do you respond well to criticism? That's our topic for today. It's about pleasing God in spite of strong opposition or, to put it another way, responding to criticism in a godly way. But before we look at our passage, I want to say something to begin with about critical theory. Critical theory has been around for a while, but it's emerged, particularly in these last 10 years, as a major force for political change. And yes, it basically relies on the fact that nobody likes to be criticised. The rules of critical theory are brutally simple. Just keep on criticising. Humiliate your target. Ruin their reputation. Pick on their weak points. Force them to publicly confess their mistakes. Bully your target into a jelly. Criticise them until you've got everyone feeling terrified that they could be next. That's critical theory in action. It's a cruel and cynical power game. And mark this, the goal of critical theory is not to make the world a better place, but a worse one. It was Lenin who said to his communist friends, the worse the better. The worse the better. The real name of this game is revolution. Tear down churches, tear down families, tear down schools, tear down morals and decency. Cancel anyone who supports any traditional values at all left in our society. That's how critical theory works. It's not intended to make things better. It's a cold, hard tool of political power. So I say to you, beware the beast of critical theory because it eats its own children. You've been warned. It's a battle for the truth and a battle for souls and this is the front line of the battle in our society today. As Christians, we are all involved in a spiritual battle, aren't we? And in fact, critical theory is just one of the weapons now being used against us. They pretend it's about justice, social justice, but actually it's a satanic uh, plan. It's it's anti-God, it's anti-Christian. Sadly, it's flourished because it works. We now have all these different kinds of critical theory. There's critical feminist theory, critical race theory, you've probably heard of that, critical gender theory. There's uh, queer theory. They're all brands of the same uh, beast. And the goal is always the same. The goal is to make you feel too afraid to say or do what you know is right. And for Christians, this becomes a challenge for our faith. Now, I know critical theory wasn't a thing 2,000 years ago, but criticising Christians certainly was. And in our passage today, I'm going to show you how you can respond to these attacks because, honestly, they're nothing new. They're nothing new. So the question is, how does Paul do it? How does the Apostle Paul respond to criticism? How does he face the criticisms that he had to face as an apostle? And what we're going to find is that the answer lies in the realm of faith, love and hope, the same triad of qualities that we looked at last week. So by faith, we need to speak and act courageously in the name of Jesus and not be silenced by the criticisms of others. In love, we need to learn to encourage and support one another. 
and in hope, we need to endure times of suffering, knowing that they will come upon those who love and follow Jesus. So faith, love and hope. This is the essence of Paul's response and uh, gives us some structure in our passage today as well. But my first question today is, as we come towards our passage is this. If Paul was such a great apostle, why was his ministry being criticised? And the answer, in large part in Thessalonica, is because of his sudden departure from the city after only being there for a matter of some three weeks or so. It was a very short stay that he had in Thessalonica. Temperatures were running so hot in the city that a mob formed and riots broke out. And it must have torn his soul to do so, but there it was. Paul was their apostle. He was an apostle to the Gentiles and he loved these people deeply, but in the interests of safety and for everyone's good, it was decided that he and Silas needed to leave and so they left that very night. Sometimes all you can do is trust God and pray. And starting in our passage today, Paul now defends his actions and encourages the church to persevere as in fact they are doing. So with that in mind, I want to suggest we've got three main points to look at in our passage today. Number one, the criticisms Paul faced, verses 1 to 6. Secondly, the outworking of the gospel in verses 6 to 12. And finally, that cost of discipleship, which we have to take account of in verses 13 to 16. The criticisms Paul faced, the outworkings of the gospel, and the cost of discipleship. But I want to begin with the criticisms Paul faced, looking at verse 1. Paul says, you know, brothers, that our visit to you was not a failure. We had previously been insulted in Philippi, as you know, but with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in spite of strong opposition. So as we come to the start of chapter 2, Paul becomes rather more serious. He needs to explain why he left Thessalonica so suddenly at the start of the riots. The question is, is Paul a failure? Because that's what some of his enemies have been saying. They're saying that Paul is a failure, that he, his gospel, his God, they're frauds. And so Paul needs to respond. And he does so, I would say, in a calmly measured way. His response is pastoral and persuasive. And he begins by saying, verse 1, You know, brothers, that our visit to you was not a failure. Is Paul a failure? No, he's not. There's, there's no substance to these attacks. Paul now begins to speak to the people personally because his great advantage is that you can't unsee reality. He has to simply remind his readers of the things that they themselves saw with their own eyes while Paul was with them to prove that there is no substance to these attacks. You can't deny reality when you've been there and seen it for yourself. Verse 3. For the appeal we make to you does not spring from error or from impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as men approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. The fundamental reason why Paul came to Thessalonica in the first place was to bring the good news of the gospel, the message that the world needs to hear that Jesus Christ is risen again and that he is the Lord and Saviour of the world. And so on this basis alone, you'd have to say that his visit was a success. The message was proclaimed, and it was proclaimed powerfully. 
Paul preached the gospel with the authority of God and those who heard the message could hear the difference. There was something about this message that had to be listened to. Paul spoke the word of God with sincerity and power and at the heart of Paul's ministry there is an honourable motive as he says in verse 4. We're not trying to please men but God who tests our hearts. That's something really that we all need to take account of as we serve Christ, that we must be God-pleasers and not man-pleasers. We are not trying to please men but God who tests our hearts. Secondly, Paul not only preached the gospel, but he preached it, he says, in spite of strong opposition. Strong opposition. The word Paul uses here in Greek is the word agony. Kind of comes and looks like agony in Greek. In Greek, it's the same word that, that actually describes the experience of athletes in the Olympic Games, for example. It, it's a word that captures the physical and mental strain of a competitor who's, who's in a race and needs to, f- to finish and finish well. The Olympian exerts every inch of their being to win the race and gain the crown of victory. They even are prepared to push through the pain barrier into the realm of agony to win the prize. And Paul takes that word and he applies it to the strong opposition that he faced, his willingness to push on and to keep preaching and proclaiming in spite of strong opposition. Such is the cost of standing firm and preaching the gospel to a hostile audience. I don't know if you've ever seen a movie called The Insider with Russell Crowe. It's pretty old now. It's uh, somewhere around 2000, somewhere in there. It's, it's, it's an older movie, but it's an interesting story that it tells about a whistleblower uh, in the American tobacco industry. There's a man who had the courage to stand up for the truth against the cigarette companies, um, and in the end, it resulted in the cigarette companies being found guilty of covering up the health dangers associated with smoking cigarettes. It was a big case back in the 1990s. But the price that man paid for speaking the truth was huge. He lost his job, he lost his house, he lost his wife and his family. He almost lost his mind. They told stories about him, they spread them as though they were true, they treated him like dirt because he was really, he was threatening their God, money. Well, the insider isn't a Christian story, but if that man had been a Christian, he would have been able to find comfort from these verses in our passage today because the Apostle Paul also faced that violent and vicious and sustained opposition. There's, there's a nature of attack that can come, a criticism that is more than just a criticism of ideas but of the very person themselves. Paul also faced this slander, this rejection of his ministry. I guess today they'd say things like he's a racist, a sexist, a bigot, a homophobe. They'd call him all those sorts of things and I have to say I've got some experience with that myself now. The attacks when they come are fiery and forceful. They have little to do with the truth. It's all about attacking you personally, trying to attack the man, not the ball. But now how does the Apostle Paul respond to the criticism he faced? I want to suggest the answer is with calmness, with courage, and with good grace. Listen to what he says next in verse 4. 
Verse 4, we're not trying to please men but God who tests our hearts. We've seen that. You know we never used flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from men, not from you or from anyone else. What this means is that Paul's motives in ministry were rock solid. He didn't preach the gospel for praise or success or flattery. No, his only desire was to serve his Lord faithfully and to see souls saved from their bondage to sin. That's what Paul cared about. It makes me ask the question, what about us? What motives do you or I have in serving Jesus Christ today? Whether in kids' church or Lumos or music or a committee of management, why do you serve? Why do you sing? Why do you pray? Why are you here today? What's your motive in being here? Is it to worship the Lord? To hear his word and respond in repentance and faith? I hope so. Is it to praise your king and saviour? Is it to meet with God's people and be mutually encouraged in one another's faith? I hope it is because that's what church is meant to be about. So let's take the opportunity this morning to examine our own hearts in the light of God's word and see if there's any pride or bitterness or selfish ambition getting in the way of our walk with Jesus. May God reveal it to us. May he convict us of our sin. May he help us to align our motives to those of Christ as the Apostle Paul did so that we can say with him, we're not trying to please men but God who tests our hearts. We're not here for flattery. We're not here for greed. We're not here looking for the praises of men or women, not from you or anyone else, only from our King and Saviour, the Lord Jesus. God is our witness. If anyone wants to criticise us for what we do or what we believe, well then let them. We're not answerable to them, but to God. As the Apostle Paul says, let, let me read this to you again. We're not trying to please men, but God, who tests our hearts. You know we never used flattery, nor do we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We're not looking for praise from men, not from you or anyone else. And that's how it ought to be. That's how it ought to be. Now Paul goes on in the middle part of our passage to launch a counter-argument that is rooted and grounded in the love of Jesus Christ. It is very encouraging. It's the outworking of the gospel. And it's based, as I said, on this motive of God's love in verses 6 to 12. Listen to what Paul says, picking up from verse 6. As apostles of Christ, we could have been a burden to you, but we were gentle among you like a mother caring for her little children. We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because you had become so dear to us. It's a very encouraging word, isn't it? We were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because you had become so dear to us. On the one hand, Paul describes himself as a mother caring for her little children in Christ, And then again in verse 11, he's also going to describe himself as a dad, 
a spiritual father. So he has both sides of the, the parental equation in view. He says in verse 11, For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Encouraging, comforting and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. As always, Paul gives the highest place to the Lord Jesus Christ and to the message of the gospel, since this is the spiritual food without which we will surely starve. But the gospel is never separated from the experience of the Christian life. It it just soaks in the experience of God and in the fellowship we have. After all, I guess what's the point of, of having the good news if you can't enjoy it when it comes? And Paul's ministry now is very different to that of his accusers, the angry, accusing, judgmental attitudes of the critics. Paul is a man who's willing to share his life with you. His appeal to the heart is enfolded in the loving arms of an apostle who cares for his people as much as a parent cares for their children. Paul is more than a mere messenger. He's a shepherd of Christ's sheep. He loves them deeply, even to his own hurt. You see in verse 9 what he says? Surely you remember, brothers, our toil and hardship. We worked among you night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. You are our witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. Well, this is a measure of a real church leader, isn't it? Honestly, I don't think I measure up too well against Paul's standard that he sets here. Can you imagine what church would be like if we all modelled this ministry in our own lives, this God-pleasing example of Christian sacrificial service? What a privilege it would be and what a joy to grow and go together in the Lord. I think this is something to pray about and to discuss with one another, to encourage one another in our faith. Maybe you can talk about it after church today as you're having morning tea. What would it mean to, for you personally to love Christ and to care for one another in the same way that Paul cared for the Thessalonians? Or again, what, what is God teaching you or me today that we could apply in our own lives and circumstance? Is there anything that you'd like to see being done better at church? If yes, how can you encourage positive change? Serving implies a direct cost to you in some other area of your life, doesn't it? In order to serve in church, there has to be some uh, give and take. There's only 24 hours in a day. How are you going to structure the decisions and choices you make? The Apostle Paul speaks of working night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone. Well then, how prepared are you for a greater cost in the name of God's love. Or again, speaking up in spite of strong opposition is sometimes required of us as Christians to defend the truth. Are you willing to trust God and not be silenced in important matters, even if it means a decision that could end your employment? As we ask these questions... 
We're already moving into the final part of our passage today, the cost of discipleship in verses 13 to 16. In these verses, Paul focuses on the sufferings of God's people. Then they're real, they're real sufferings, but also on the coming of God's wrath, which is also real. The message is that being a disciple is costly for us now, but it's all a part of God's plan to sift the righteous from the wicked. So Paul comforts those who are suffering in the Lord with the encouragement that God is with you in your trials and that he is pleased with you. Look at verse 13. And we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. Now, this is the heart of God-pleasing Christian ministry. It's, it's the accepting of God's word as it really is, not the words of men or human uh, invention, but the word of the living God. And then you get with this the joy of salvation mixed with the cost of discipleship that produces a life that's willing to serve Christ, come what may. Oh, let's read on from verse 14 to the end. In fact, let's read it together comes up on the screen for us I'd like us to read this together verses 14 to 16 together for you brothers became imitators of God's churches in Judea which are in Christ Jesus you suffered from your own countrymen the same things those churches suffered from the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out They displease God and are hostile to all men in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. Well, this is a very hard word that Paul gives us here at the end of our passage. I guess no matter how you try to squirm out from under it, it makes it absolutely clear what God's perspective is on the matter. This is a spiritual battle, and our souls are the prize. So if you want to please God, then you must bring your life under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Nevertheless, Paul is able to thank God even for the sufferings that his friends are enduring Because this suffering and persecution is evidence that they are marching to the beat of a different drum. They can no longer sit back and coast along. They can no longer remain silent or unmoved when their faith is being challenged. And so they have become, as Paul says, imitators of God's churches in Judea who are going through the same thing. The problem there was at the hands of the Jews who killed Jesus and the prophets and also stirred up the crowds against Paul in places like Philippi and Thessalonica. There have always been those who want to suppress the truth of the gospel to keep it away from the ears and hearts of those who have heard it, that they might not hear it. So Paul says, in this way they heap up their sins to the limit. And then he ominously warns them in verse 16, the wrath of God has come upon them at last, or perhaps to the full. So even when we suffer for doing good, we can be assured as Christians that God is in control and that he cares for us. And this is meant to be an encouragement to us as his people. 
Well, I began today, this morning, by saying that criticism can be hard to take, and it's true, especially when it's unjust criticism. Do you know, Christians have always been criticised for our faith in Jesus. They persecuted the prophets in the Old Testament and they nailed Jesus to a cross. <laughs> Should we expect any better? I have to say, though, I think we're now living through an increasingly critical time. Certainly in Western civilization, this uh, critical theory is starting to have a real impact. As Christians, we must be prepared for what's coming. Some of you recently told me that you've had to attend at work something called yarning circles. Who's been to a yarning circle? Uh, a couple of you were speaking to me about these, at which got nothing to do with knitting. Okay, it's not a, not a yarning circle for knitting. No, these groups, attendance required, are designed to control your thinking and behaviour by sharing examples of racial injustice. It's critical theory applied and it's part of the Uluru Statement of Outcomes. What you may not know, though, is that these ideas come straight out of the communist playbook. During the Cultural Revolution in China, they were called struggle sessions, where loyal comrades had to rehearse the noble values of communism, share their failings, dob in their friends and promise to do better next time. A yarning circle is just a gentle form of a struggle session. As Christians, how do we respond to this kind of endless propaganda? Well, in our passage today, the answer is by faith, love and hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. By faith, speak and act courageously in the name of Jesus and don't be silenced by the criticisms of others. Say no. Say it calmly, say it graciously, but say it clearly. I, I'm not going to do that. I don't agree with you. That's not right. In love, learn to encourage and support each other. Pray. Perhaps give me a call. Talk about how you're going in the challenge you face and find out what we can do positively as Christians because we don't always want to be caught saying no that's not where we want to be. We want to be able to say yes to what's good and positive. So we need to work out what's the right and loving thing to do as Christians and suggest that instead. And then in hope, come what may, we need to be ready to endure times of suffering patiently, knowing that God is with us and is pleased with us. Is it easy? No. Nobody said it's easy. It's not easy to be gospel-centred, God-focused, Christ-oriented in life. You will always face opposition for that, and it's about to get harder. When it gets harder, you need to respond in a godly way. I think, too, though, you need to test your own motives first because if someone criticises you, you need to ask yourself, perhaps, do they have a point? Are they right? Is there something that I need to repent of first? Because criticism could be valid. We need to consider that possibility, too. And also to be careful before we start criticising others. Why do I feel the need to be critical? Am I speaking the truth? And am I speaking it in love? There's a difference. Am I becoming the problem by being overly critical? Am I hindering the gospel, in fact, in another person's life 
and displeasing God in the process. Responding to criticism in a godly way requires wisdom, prayer and patience. And sometimes the best way to respond is simply to keep your eyes on Jesus, roll up your sleeves and do some work. Answer your critics by doing something useful. Never mind the naysayers, they'll always be there. So the question is, what can we do together for God's gospel today as his people? What can I do personally as an individual member of this church? Can I pray? Can I teach? Can I cook? Can I comfort those in need? Can I give generously? Can I say hi to newcomers who come through the door on a Sunday? Can I read the Bible with a friend? Can I take up the opportunity to give a kid's talk on Sunday morning? Can I start up a door-knocking team or an opportunity to tell people the good news of what Jesus has done? What can we do to just roll up our sleeves and do some work? Because isn't that the best way to answer the critics? Just answer them by proving them wrong. Be prepared to stand up for Jesus, knowing that the gospel will put you out of step with the world. And when criticism comes, as it must, then let's respond with faith, love and hope. Again, I say, by faith, speak and act courageously in Jesus' name and don't be silenced by the criticisms of others. In love, learn to encourage and support each other. And in hope, endure times of suffering, knowing that they will come upon those who love and follow Jesus. And of course, remember to listen and pray so that you don't become the stumbling block yourself in someone else's life. And that, my friends, is how to respond to criticism in a godly way. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for God's word, your word to us this morning, through the Apostle Paul and his experience of being criticised. Thank you for the way in which he responded calmly, and in a considered way for the faith that he maintained such that he was not silenced, for the love that he showed to his brothers and sisters in Christ at Thessalonica, treating them as it were like a mother caring for her little children or, or like a father deals with his own children. That extraordinary personal and caring way and also for the hope that you set before us that we can endure times of suffering not losing hope, but trusting that you are with us through it all. Father, forgive us when we become the critics and unjustly point the finger and blame others for things that perhaps have disappointed us, but we could have more constructively dealt with. Help us, Lord, to roll up our sleeves and do the work you call us to do which is to proclaim the good news that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he has risen from the dead, that he is coming again at the end of time to judge the living and the dead and to bring in your new creation. Help us, Lord, to be patient and look for that day with hope. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.